Well, good evening. Let's hope the power stays on. <laughs> you can be praying for that, right? We need the Spirit's power, but we also need a little electrical power for this evening. Let's hope. Let's hope. Hopefully we won't have any problems with that. Okay, this evening, in the midst of this very violent storm out there, what we'll do is open up our Bibles to First John. In chapter 2, where we left off two weeks, oh no, last week, uh, in verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. Let's open in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our gathering. We do pray that you'd keep the lights on. And that we would just be able to continue to worship you without distraction or any hindrance, Lord. We just, we just want you to receive all the glory for us to receive all we can from you. By your Spirit's power, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we are encouraged. Now, concerning fellowship, remember the theme of this book is fellowship in Christ. We looked last week at the first main section of this. We had an introduction the week before. We talked about the conditions for fellowship, the conditions for fellowship. This evening, we're going to be speaking about the concerns for fellowship the concerns for fellowship. And one of the main concerns that you can bring about and talk about uh, regarding fellowship is worldliness, a love of the world. Because the one thing that will really concern me in a church is if people are so worldly that it hinders spiritual fellowship. So this is where John's going next. We talked about the conditions, which are sort of the basics for having fellowship in Christ and with one another. Now we're looking at the fellowship that is spoken about here in this way, in verse 15. Let's talk about it. Let's read it together. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. That's a wonderful portion of Scripture. I really feel like that would probably be enough tonight, but I want to see how much we get through here. I feel like what John is really trying to make clear is we must not love the world or anything in the world. I know that sounds redundant. That's what he just said, right? Yes, but think about it for a minute. Does that mean that we don't love the world? Well, God so loved the world. Oh, you see, what we're talking about here is a different word for world. It really has to do with the world system. It has to do with the worldliness in the world, the the world that is opposed to God and his word and his love for mankind. So we must not love that. We must not give our hearts to the things in this world. If we love the world and worldly things, we do not love God and we do not have fellowship with him. That's what he says in verse 15. We don't love God and we don't have fellowship with him if we love the things in the world. It's that clear. Now you say, well, pastor, that's a little, you know, strict, uh, that's a little stern because I love some things in the world. Oh, I love the sky. I love, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the beauty of God's creation. We're talking about the wickedness of the world that rejects Christ and God's love. You can't love that. You can't even desire that and not have it affect your fellowship 
with Christ and with one another. And this is true regardless of what you say. You can claim to have fellowship with God. The Gnostics, those heretics we've talked so much about, they claim to have fellowship with God. But they didn't. They didn't know God. Because they love the world and the things of the world. They love the world so much they came up with a philosophy. Gnosticism says, my spirit worships God, my body loves the world, and it's okay because I'm really different. I mean, my spirit is different from my body. It's kind of two different parts of me. God has no use for my body, so my body can give itself over to all the different fleshly desires and things of this world, and my spirit can continue to serve God, and I'm good. I don't sin. And so John addresses a lot of these things in his writings. But realize, no matter what you claim, no matter what fellowship you claim to have with God or with someone else, you would be deceiving yourself if you claim to love God and yet love this world. And isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 19? You can't love the world. You can't love money and God. You can't have two masters. You can't love the world and God. You can't have it both ways. And I think this is probably the worst... uh, problem in the church today is that we're seeing churches that will tell people it's okay to love the things of the world and it doesn't mean you don't love God. And yet John says something opposed to that, doesn't he? So the world and worldly things, they don't come from God the Father. They come from the world of sinful men. And we're going to look at three things, three isms, if you will, that plague mankind. They're part of the curse of sin, but they plague men and women and have forever. And they will, as long as we're in these human mortal bodies. The first is talked about in this way, the cravings of sinful man. If any, it says, for everything, excuse me, verse 16, for everything in the world. And he goes on to mention three things. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Let's break it down. Let's start with the first one. The cravings of sinful man. And that's mankind, men and women. The cravings of sinful man are that which his fleshly nature desires to have. This ism is hedonism. Maybe you've actually heard of that word before. When I was a very young person in my teens and early 20s, I had heard about, though I never knew anything beyond hearing about it, about a resort that was called hedonism. Imagine that. I I don't even want to think, I don't want to go on their website. You know what I mean? Wouldn't suggest doing a web search on that word. But that ism is hedonism, and it has to do with the cravings of sinful man. Listen, it is all about what your body desires, what you desire. That's hedonism. It means to live for pleasure. It was a Greek philosophy, and the Gnostics sort of adopted part of that. But Christians, so many Christians live for what they desire, their, their fleshly desires, their cravings, and, and the things that make them happy. And they think, if I just have more of that, I'll be happy. Whatever that is. Anything that you crave. Listen, Satan tempted Eve, and he did so with forbidden fruit that was, as it describes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, good for food. Tastes really good. You ever, like, at around 10 o'clock at night, watch TV? The commercials. I don't watch much TV with commercials anymore, but I always used to remember I'd get hungry around 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And it's because every commercial made me want to get up from the couch and go satisfy my cravings. Cravings I didn't even know I had until I saw, ooh, chips, cookies. 
You see, when you desire those things, when those are the things you want and those are the things that you're looking for, the world has all of that on a silver platter and wants to give it to you. That's hedonism. Satisfy your pleasures. Satan, oh, here's the fruit. It's good for food. It's, it's like that commercial at 1030 at night. It's good for food. Satan tempted Jesus to disobey God and satisfy his hunger in exactly the same way. And Matthew and Luke's gospel, we have that recorded for us, right? Turn these stones to bread. You're going to be tempted in the same way to satisfy your sinful cravings. You have them. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's normal. It's not normal. It's anything but normal. It's, it's, it's natural because our sin nature provides us with these cravings and therefore our sin nature, well, it, it presents these things, whether it's 1030 at night or 9 o'clock in the morning, presents these things to us. You're going to be tempted in this way. You are. But know that the cravings of sinful man are in the category of not coming from the Father, but from the world. You know, the God, God's law, the law says this. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Those are things, when we are angry, we want to murder. When we, when we lust, we want to commit adultery. When, when we desire something, we want to steal. The law tells us it's wrong, but the Spirit gives us the power to change. So when you deal with the inevitable result of being a sinful person, you have a craving, a craving, an, an un, or, excuse me, a natural craving, a sinful, the craving of sinful men. When you deal with that, remember how Jesus dealt with it. It is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You go to God's word and you deal with that hedonistic tendency to satisfy our cravings. Okay, what's the second one? The lust of his eyes. Now, the lust of his eyes is that which a carnal mind desires to have. It's a little different than your sinful cravings. This is the carnal mind. This is less of a craving and more of a desire. The lust of the eyes. The eyes say to the brain, ooh, that looks good. And yes, it can go alongside our cravings, but it's a little bit more than that. It's this idea of materialism. Materialism is a little different. You may crave something, but you may also desire something because someone else has it. It's a little different, but you see it and you think that looks good. I'd like to have that. Why can't I have a BMW? Why can't I have a Cadillac? Why can't I have a big house? And this happens to us all the time. It may not even be something you truly desire, But because you see it with your eyes and you see your neighbor has it, it causes you to desire that. I've got to have that. Entojado, right? I've got to have that. So that type of thinking is materialism. And listen, brothers and sisters, we're, we're dealing with the big three here that every man and every woman, every Christian deals with. You don't stop dealing with these things because the curse of sin is still upon you. Now, what I mean by that, you've been saved. But have you noticed you're still sinning? Or is it just me? You're still sinning. Why are you still sinning? Because you still have that sin nature. You've been redeemed. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. However, the sin nature is still with you. So the lust of your eyes, it's that which your carnal mind desires to have. Remember what Satan did? He tempted Eve. How did he tempt Eve? He did it with forbidden fruit that was not only good for food, pleasing to the eye. When your eyes desire something, it's different than a sinful craving. It's, it, there's just something within us that says, I just got to have this. Boy, I don't know. 
I have a good car, but that car is nicer. I have a nice home, but I, that, that house is bigger. When we fall prey to that, we give our hearts to materialism. And that is worldliness, just like hedonism, worldliness. Satan tempted Jesus to reject God and to gain what for himself? The world. You can gain the whole world. Just reject God. Of course, he didn't. You're going to give your heart to me, worship me, just, just do what it is that I'm asking, and guess what? I'll give you everything you need, everything you want. We will be tempted in the same way to possess the lust of our eyes, what we see. That would have been the easy road for Jesus. He didn't. He resisted with the word of God. You know, worship God and him only. That, you are not to give your heart to anyone other than God. And if you do that, you'll find that you won't succumb to the lust of the eye, materialism. But understand where it comes from, the world. And this, the devil, listen, the devil just uses worldliness to get you to sin. The worldliness is in the world, whether the devil goes on vacation, the devil goes on vacation, go to the Bahamas for a week, you're still going to have the worldliness in the world. All the devil does is uses that against you. But it's there. And it doesn't even require much coaxing, does it, for us to become hedonistic, satisfy our cravings, materialistic, satisfy that which we see, that which we want. God's law says specifically in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not covet. What is covet? Lust. Desire something that isn't yours. And you see there that materialism is exactly that. Desiring something that isn't yours. You want to make it yours. The lust of the eyes. That's worldliness summed up in, in a, really a very succinct way. Hedonism, materialism. We get to the last one, and this is perhaps maybe even the worst, although I think they're all pretty bad. It's the boasting of what a man has and does. It's the ego, and we call it egoism or egoism. It is the boasting of what a person has or does. Now think about how do you typically define yourself, even as a Christian, by what you have and what you do. When you go to a party, what is the question you might ask? What do you do? Okay, oh, what is it you have there? Oh, nice car, nice home. We define ourselves by what we have and what we do. And we oftentimes define others by what they have and what they do or what they don't have or what they don't do. So much of who we are is caught up in our ego and our ego is fed by the things we accomplish and the way people see us, the things we do, the things we've gained. Those things, that way of thinking is, again, natural, but so is sin. The Christian is not to desire the cravings of the sinful nature. The Christian is not to give themselves over to the lust of the eye, the things they want. And the Christian is not to give themselves over to ambition, a desire for recognition, affirmation. The Christian is not to give themselves to the identity crisis that the world suffers from. Who am I? Well, I got to be somebody. I'm going to my college reunion. I'm going to my high school reunion. People are going to ask me what I have, what I've accomplished. They're going to ask me what I do. And I need to be able to give them an answer that impresses them. There it is. There's the ego. Staring at you in the mirror. Egoism. The boasting of what a man has and does. That which his proud heart desires to be. Now let's answer this. How do you deal with that? Well, remember that Satan tempted Eve with forbidden fruit that was, ready for this? Desirable for gaining wisdom. 
Interesting, it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. You see how Satan's temptations line up with the worldliness that John is talking about perfectly? Why? Because Satan ain't got but three strings on his guitar. It doesn't take more than that. Everybody falls to one or all of those things. That sums up the sin nature. Just three things. I mean, there may be more, but that's enough. When you look at egoism, Satan tempted Eve with this forbidden fruit. That He said, it, you're going to gain wisdom. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom's going to make me more wise. It's going to make me impressive. I can boast about who I am and what I do. That was the real hook. Oh, it looked good. Oh, it'll, it'll taste good. But what will it do for me? How many Christians fall prey to the ego? I want people to think of me well. I want people to like me. Oh, my goodness. We measure on social media the number of likes someone has. I am not on social media. You won't find me. You might possibly find a picture of me that somebody took without my permission. You won't find I have a Facebook account or an Instagram account. You will find my email. You're free to write me. Uh, you'll, you, you might find my office phone number. You're free to call me. But one thing you won't find out is whether I care whether you like me or not. Because I don't. I don't care. Because I'm only concerned that God loves me and that I love others. And so I don't measure myself based on how many followers, oh, how many followers I have, really, okay. How, how well-liked I am. How many people have liked my post? You know, there are people that post, I know none of them are here tonight, that post something, a picture, a phrase, a meme, a saying, and all they do for the next 24 hours is check it to see how many people liked it. If you are that person, stop it. You're only hurting yourself. You realize that, right? Because that's the boasting of what a man or woman has or does. It, you're giving yourself over to egoism. Who cares who likes what I do? I don't. And the other thing is, why should you? Why should you? Let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That was the result Solomon came to at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. After he went through every ism you can imagine... And I, there are a lot of isms in Ecclesiastes. He gets through that whole book of philosophy that is all dead ways of thinking, dead ways of thinking, worldly ways of thinking, and he basically says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So there you go. Satan tempted Jesus to test God and prove his deity by jumping off the temple, right? Test God. Let everybody see who you are. Let them see what you can do. Let them see who you are, what, what, the boasting of what a man has and does. Let them see what you have. Let them see what you do. Let the world know who you are. That's what Satan said. This lines up perfectly. These temptations line up perfectly, not only with the temptations of Satan in the garden with Eve, but also the temptation in the wilderness with Jesus. All three temptations of Jesus, all three temptations of Eve are exactly the same thing wrapped up in different wrapping paper. But they're the same thing. Why? Because, you, like I said, Satan ain't got but three strings on his guitar. This is it. 
We will be tempted in the same way to boast of what we have and what we've accomplished. Don't do it, brothers and sisters. That's what you're doing when you post those pictures of your vacation. You're letting everybody know, we went here. We did that. Look at me. I made a nice meal. Look at it. I think it's a very unhealthy way of thinking. You can make excuses, but I still think it's unhealthy. God's law states you have, will have no other gods before me. Are you making yourself your own God? Or, or, or maybe more importantly, are you making other people and their opinion of you a God? Because if you're trying to please others, who are you serving? Who are you serving if all you do is post and do things to try to get people to like you and say nice things about you? You have to really ask yourself the question, am I serving an idol and is that idol someone else or a group of people or just everybody else or the world? So as I look at these three things, it's just amazing to me how each of these temptations that Jesus dealt with, each of the temptations that Eve fell to, are all the same things we read here. They are the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. And John goes on to say, it comes not from the Father, but from the world. That's where it comes from. So you understand why John says, don't love the world? The best that the world has to offer you is hedonism, satisfying your pleasures, materialism, satisfying your desires, the things that you see and you want, and egoism, that is, satisfying your pride, letting people think well of you or wanting people to think well of you. That's what the world is going to promise you, I guarantee, and not deliver. I I can tell you, you'll never feel good enough about yourself, have enough or satisfy your cravings that one day you wake up and you say, I've given myself over to everything I've ever wanted and everything I've ever felt and everything I've ever wanted to be and I can finally say I'm satisfied. Does anybody ever say that? No, in fact, the people that have more, you know where they end up? Putting a gun to their head or a rope around their neck because they figure it out. You can't satisfy yourself with these things. They're bottomless pits that will suck your soul dry. And that's why we don't love the world or anything in the world. That's what's going to happen to you if you give yourself over to it. So don't love the world. Okay. If we love the world, it's important to remember that the reason people come up empty, the reason they, 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 they feel the way they feel after they've given their hearts over to the things of the world is because everything you could possibly experience in this life is going to burn. It's all going to go away. Look what he says in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. That's what drove Solomon in Ecclesiastes to say it's all vanity. It's worthless. He got depressed. (laughs) And this is a man that had wisdom in abundance. This is a man that had everything he could want. He had a thousand women and maybe even more. And he had all the pleasure and all all the things his eyes and his mind could desire. And yet, at the end of his life, he said, it's all worthless. It's all vanity. And I've already shared his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So if you're on that path to try to satisfy yourself or your cravings or your desires or your ego... You've got to get off that path. It's the broad road that leads to destruction. Get back on that narrow path that leads to life eternal. Amen? Okay. Worldly things are temporary. That we know. Everything's going to pass away. Spiritual things are eternal. Better to focus on those, right? I mean, it's easy for even the most spiritual person to lose sight of this truth. In fact, read Psalm 73. 
believe it was Asaph, he lost sight of this truth. He started to get caught up and he said, why do the wicked prosper? It's very easy to lose sight of this. why we need to be meditating on God's word. Love for God and obedience to God's will, by the way, are synonymous. They're the same thing. Love for God, obedience to his will. Don't say you love God and don't obey his will because they're the same thing. You you can't really say you love God and not obey him. It's synonymous to say one or the other. They mean the same thing. Love for God and obedience to God. Now, and obedience to his will. Eternal life is the promise to all that love him through obedience. So, while the things of this world pass away, the man who does the will of God lives forever. Amen? Doesn't that sound a whole lot better than everything we just talked about? The emptiness and the void of this world and its promises. And there's so many that are pursuing it to their own detriment. Every time I read the story of some very wealthy person that kills themselves, I think to myself, these things must be true. Because they have more than I could ever attain, own, accomplish, satisfy my flesh. And yet they come to a point of despair. Now we live in a world where all of those things are constantly drawing us, tempting us. Satan is taking those three strings. He's coming out at us just like he did Eve, just like he did Jesus. And we better have the word of God in our hearts, right? Amen? But the reason that we have to deal with these things is because we're sinful creatures. If we did not have a sin nature, we wouldn't have that problem. But we do have a sin nature, therefore we do have these challenges. But there is something else working against us in this world. And it's important that we identify it. John identifies it. Look at verse 18. In verses 18 through 19, we learn we have some enemies. Dear children, he says... This is the last hour. That means it's the last days, but last hour means the very last days. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By the way, let me just say, Antichrist can mean against Christ, but it really means in place of Christ. It doesn't just mean against Christ. It really means something other than or in place of Christ. So when he says, as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know that it is the last hour, amen? Wow. This could have been written like this afternoon, but it was written 2,000 years ago, nearly. Notice he says, they went out from us. What? Yeah. They were once a part of the church, these Antichrists. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. How do you know an Antichrist? They were once with us, they went out from us, they no longer are with us, and they never really were one of us. That's essentially what he's saying. But you don't know that up front. You find that out later, unfortunately, sometimes. I'm going to read it again. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would not have remained, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. The fact that they left. See, sometimes people will say, oh, he was definitely saved. No, that man was definitely saved, and now he's definitely not saved. What John is saying is, maybe they weren't saved. Maybe they weren't really who they said they were. You know, that happens sometimes. It's unfortunate. It's not something I like to think about, but it's true. So what we're learning here is that John believed 
that they were living in the last days. And we must be aware of the spirit of Antichrist because we are living in the last days or the last hour before Christ's return. Days are short. Time is short and the days are evil. The early church was taught and believed in the coming of an Antichrist. You know this, right? An Antichrist, singular, an Antichrist. Actually, if you read the book of Revelation, there are technically two. There's a beast and a false prophet who are Antichrists, but the Antichrist is that which is in place of Christ. So we have that today, even though the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. It could be government, it could be a philosophy, it could be sin, it could be a relationship, anything that takes the place of Christ or is opposed to Christ. So the early church believed this. They, they had seen and heard a large number of antichrists already. Paul told them it would happen in Acts chapter 20. That wolves would come in, and they did, into the church. And John saw this as proof that they were truly living in the last days. So the fact that the church has suffered at the hands of antichrists throughout the centuries just proves we're living in the last days. And the fact that it's becoming worse and worse in our culture today gets me a little excited because I I know that the clock is ticking and we're in the last hour of the last days. Amen? Hey, that's what Jesus said would happen, so don't be surprised. John saw this as proof. They were living in the last days and the early church had experienced betrayals, defections from within the fellowship in that first century. We've experienced some of that over the, over the years in our own lives and maybe in this church or other churches. You certainly have. But in that first century, there were a lot of people who got saved. And then toward the end of that century, a lot of people were now turning to things like Gnosticism and heresy and sin. And it was hard to look at what God had done and realize many of the people that were caught up in the movement of the Spirit weren't really caught up in the movement of the Spirit. They really weren't saved. They really weren't among them. They really weren't part of the fellowship. And it didn't become apparent right away. You know, if if I, there's a little geometry for you. You know, if I were to draw two lines that were perfectly parallel, allegedly parallel lines eventually meet. I don't know about that. But I do know this. If I were to draw two lines and they weren't exactly parallel, within a short period of time, those lines would intersect, right? Right? Well, understand something that when you look at a life of a Christian and another proclaiming to be a Christian, over time they deviate slowly such that when you go down the road, this way they may have been intersecting, but now they're growing further apart until ultimately they could be a mile apart. And that's when you know that the one person really wasn't a Christian. It made itself apparent over time. Conversely, the person that still serving Christ 20 years later has proved through their life and their lifestyle that they really are the true wheat, if you will, of God. Jesus says, leave the wheat and the tares together. You know, then during harvest time, he separates them. But for now, there are people that think that they're doing the right thing, but they're slowly deviating from the truth, maybe because they're not in it. And eventually, it will become apparent to everyone around them that they're really not who they they say they are or they think they are. I don't want anyone to worry about that because John later says in this book, in chapter 5, verse 13, I write this book to you, I write this letter to you so that you'll know that you're saved. It's not to make you nervous, but understand, you will be able to see who the real wheat and tares are. Who are the tares? Who are the wheat? COVID in our culture has separated the wheat and the chaff. 
Because there are people who don't go to church anymore. Why did that happen? Oh, they're afraid, Pastor. They're afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid too. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that when you don't put yourself in the place God has called you to be, you are going to fail spiritually and miserably. That's what I'm more afraid of than getting sick. Because I've had the flu before. Okay? But you know what I don't want to find myself? I don't want to find myself so far from God that I have to crawl my way back to where I was before I stopped doing the things his word commanded me to do, like gathering, worshiping, serving, studying God's word. Oh, pastor, I can do all those things online. No, you can't. The word for, for, for church is ecclesia. It means gathering. But we can gather online. No, you can't. You can't gather online. It's a face-to-face relationship with one another. Yes, even if you want to separate six feet, but it still has to be face-to-face. We found that out the hard way over this last year and a half. Well, anyway, let's move on. The early church had experienced betrayals and defections, as I've described with those lines that are slightly askew. They intersect at one point, but later on they're miles away from each other. These antichrists had left the church because they weren't really Christians. Imagine that. John saw this as proof that they were not Christians. They were (laughs) anti-Christians. You probably never heard that term before. Well, if there's a Christ and there's Christians and there's an antichrist, I assume there are anti-Christians. That is, people who claim to be Christians but are not. And I'm not judging anyone. I'm not. But John is pointing this truth out. Now, John believed that as Christians, they had received an anointing from God. And that's the thing that distinguishes you from anti-Christians. You have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit who has poured out, his, uh, love, he poured out his love into your hearts by faith. You can't call him Lord but by the Spirit. So what is the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian? They have been anointed by God, the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit fills their hearts. The Holy Spirit in your life is the proof that you are a Christian. So, This is what was happening. Look at verses 20 through 23. But you have an anointing. Oh, I love that. You have an anointing. Notice John is not calling them out. He's writing to them so that they can know they're saved. And he's saying, you have an anointing. And and brothers and sisters, may I echo that? You have an anointing. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son, and no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you want to know whether you're a Christian? Well, it's pretty simple. What are the concerns for fellowship? Well, do you know the Son? Then you know the Father. Do you have a relationship with the Son? Well, then you have a relationship with the Father. Do you have an anointing? Do you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is is God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you by faith? Then you are one of the wheat. You're not the tare. You're not the chaff. You are one of God's children. No one calls him Lord but by the Spirit. So John believed that as Christians, they had received this anointing from God, and that was the distinguishing characteristic. The early church was anointed by the Holy Spirit to understand the truth of God's Word. Let me ask you a question. Do you read the Bible and understand the truth of God's Word? Oh, I know you don't understand all of it, neither do I. Does it make sense to you? 
Do the things that I say right now in this study or the things I'm sharing with you connect? Do they resonate? Is God speaking to your heart? Are you being challenged? Are you thinking, you know what pastor's saying is is kind of true. I, I need to work on this area of my life. Then you have an anointing from God because no one can discern the words of God unless they are spiritual. That is, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The carnal person, they can't, you know, they can't know those things. They can't understand the word of God. But if you're filled with the spirit, you may not get it all, but you understand this a little bit. You know what? I understand what the pastor's saying. It makes sense to me. I agree with it. I struggle with it, but I understand it. Well, then you have nothing to worry about. You, you really shouldn't worry at all. I mean, you have this anointing. We, we know it's true. The church was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's how they knew the truth. That's how they could understand the truth. And this anointing is what differentiated them from the anti-Christians. The anti-Christians didn't have the Spirit. And that's the distinguishing characteristic. John was writing to them. Why? To remind them of the truth they already knew. If I told you something about Jesus since we started our study this evening, a few minutes ago, that you never knew, I'd be surprised. I think you know this already. Doesn't mean we don't need to hear it. How do you know that? Because you have an anointing from God. God has given you that knowledge and understanding. And that should bring you comfort. Now the early church was enabled by the word of God, not just by the spirit, but by the word of God to identify these anti-Christians. The word of God gives you knowledge and wisdom and understanding. That comes through the fear of the Lord and understanding his word. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. These antichrists denied the truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. They denied that God the Father sent God the Son as the Savior of the world. And John declared that you cannot know God without knowing his Son, Jesus. For he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6. So, they were enabled and empowered by the anointing of the Holy Spirit and enabled and empowered by the study of the Word of God to not only know the truth, but to know what was false. Now, tell me, Christians, why do we need to be in God's Word? Because by being in God's Word, you know this. You'll know the truth, and you'll know what's false. What did the devil try so desperately to do in the church, in our culture, over the last year and a half? To get you out of his word, that is God's word. By getting you out of the word, you won't know the truth. And you'll believe all sorts of things, and that's been proven. You'll believe anything. To, to, get, to get you out of the truth, and then you won't even know what's false. Thy word is truth. Brothers and sisters, more than ever, we need to be in his word. I'm not saying you have to read the entire Bible. You'll eventually get there. But meditate on his word day and night. That's how you're going to prosper. Amen? Okay. Wrapping this up. John's reason for writing this epistle. Look at verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. Amen? 
See, what he's saying here is that his reason for writing the epistle was to warn them about about false teachers. I mean, ultimately, that, that was what we're going to see later on in this section. He was warning them about what was false and telling them how to deal with it. He writes to them as disciples of Christ, warning them to continue in the truth of God's word. We've already talked about that, continuing in the truth of God's word. You see, the early church, unlike the church today, in large part, was grounded in the fundamental teachings of God's word, and they didn't even have a New Testament. They only had the Old Testament for a long time, then they finally got the New Testament. And you know what I find today? Very few Christians bother reading either. So, the Old Testament. You could not read the New Testament and still learn everything you need to know about God. You could read the New Testament and learn everything you need to know about God. You need both Testaments. Okay, we're great. All of God's Word, great, wonderful. But, but if you don't read any of it, God help you. You're going to need to be in God's Word more and more as the days grow more and more evil and darker. You're just going to need to. Just accept that. And by the way, I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are here tonight. Amen? And for those listening online, we're glad you listen online as well. Nothing wrong with that at all. Can't take the place of church, but it's better if you can't be here to listen than not. Amen? So now, as I look at this, I realize the early church was grounded in these fundamental teachings. And it is essential for all believers to be instructed in the truth of God's word. That's why God gives to the church teachers and evangelists, preachers, those that can take God's word and break it down and present it to you. And it's also essential that all disciples are encouraged in the truth of God's word, not just instructed. That tells you what to do. Encouraged fans the flames. You ever notice that a coach not only tells you what to do, but encourages you to do it? Sometimes you only know to do one or two things, but you need someone to come along and say, okay, now do it, now do it, now do it. That's what studying God's word should be in our lives. Now, the early church was promised the Lord's eternal presence, his his eternal life. And Christians, Christians, listen, Christians, listen, should never doubt the Lord's presence in their life. If the Holy Spirit's in your life, why are you doubting? Don't doubt. Christians should never doubt the Lord's promise of eternal life. I'm not sure if it's true. No, it's true. And you know it's true. But then he gets to verse 26, and he tells us flat out, which he does in just a few places in this epistle, why he wrote the letter. Notice in verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Stay in, what's the theme? Fellowship in Christ. Stay in fellowship with Christ and with one another. How do you do that? By being in God's word. He writes to them as spirit-filled believers. By the way, there's only one kind of believer, only one type of believer, a spirit-filled believer. What's the alternative? A believer that's not spirit-filled? No, that, 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 that doesn't exist. A spirit-filled believer. And he warns them not to be led astray from God's word. So it's, you know, be in God's word. The early church was being influenced by these anti-Christians. Our church and our culture today is as well. 
Anti-Christians are those that claim to know Christ, claim to be Christians, but they're not. And we see far too much of that in the church, even among pastors. This most certainly is a direct reference to the Gnostics of the first century, and he clearly addresses Gnostic heresies with the truth of the Word of God. It doesn't matter what they taught. Don't spend your time dissecting the false teachings of the Watchtower Society or the Mormons or the Way International or Gnosticism. Don't don't bother. Do you know, and I'm sure you know this, that those that study to identify counterfeit bills, counterfeit currency, do not study counterfeits. They study the real thing. If you're so acquainted with a real $100 bill, when you see a false one, you'll know it. That's what we're being told, if I can put it in that very simple analogy. The early church was instructed in the truth of God's word, by the Holy Spirit. Notice, as for you, the anointing, that's the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. Notice, in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. That is, the Holy Spirit will teach you as you study God's word. You don't really need me to teach you God's word. I'm glad I could help. I'm glad I could spend the time with you and unpack some of these things. And really, though, honestly, If you've been a Christian for five minutes, most of what I'm going to tell you isn't so much teaching as it is encouragement, application. Now, maybe you need to learn some of these things, and that's great. I'm glad to share them. But some of you have been Christians for decades. You know these things. John said that you know these things. I'm not interested in even teaching you anything new. I'm interested in being that coach that says, do it, do it, do it. You know it already. Do it. And we need that. We all do myself included. The early church was instructed in the truth of God's word by the Holy Spirit. They were encouraged in in God's word and from God's word. They really didn't need any further instruction from John to contend for their faith. They certainly didn't need any additional teaching from these Gnostics and these heretics. We don't need a new gospel. We don't don't need a new twist on the gospel. We, We don't need a new philosophy that helps us to reach the world. By the way, anytime you hear of a movement that's described as emergent, Think about the meaning of the word. Stop. Breathe. Emergent. Coming out from. Where have I heard that before? It's almost like there's a scripture that, wait a minute. I think I read something like that. They went out from us. Verse 19. But they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. The word emergent means to leave, to go out from us. Hmm. Almost as if they're tipping their hand. Stop and think about it. Don't just take that on face value. Just think it through. If a movement is defined from leaving historical Christianity, is it possible? Is it possible that it's false? You answer that question for yourself. The early church was instructed in this way. They didn't need further instruction. They didn't need additional teaching from these Gnostics or anyone else because they could rely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach them the truth. And you can too, through God's word. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us the truth 
of your word. We thank you for revealing to us the very simple truths that are really more heart truths than mind truths. It's just the understanding that we need you. We need your word in our hearts by faith. We need your Holy Spirit in our lives because we need to be able to discern between the true and the false. Give us the wisdom and the understanding we need to serve you with our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to have fellowship with you and with one another through the person of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.